Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, great to be uh, with you again today. My name is Maurizio Cecconi. I am the head of anesthesia and intensive care at Humanitas Research Hospital in Milan and the president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Uh, it is my absolute pleasure today for these 30 minutes with uh, to welcome uh, Professor Michael Maiteng Monti uh, for friends. Uh, Monti, great to, to see you here. Maurizio, wonderful to be here. And thank, thank you for giving away that little secret that a limited number of people know. <laughs> My mother called me Michael. <laughs> so um, just a very short introduction, because if I look at your CV, probably we could spend 30 minutes together just reading it. But uh, uh, Professor Maiting is the Smith Medical Professor of Anesthesia and Critical Care at University College London. He's the chair of EBBOM is the founding editor-in-chief of the journal Perioperative Medicine, is part of the editorial board of the British Journal of Anesthesia, a founding editor-in-chief of Top Med Talk, a founding board member of Perioperative Quality Initiative, and the co-president of the International Board of Perioperative Medicine. This is just a few things, Monty. What do you do in your free time? <laughs> As you know, I, I try to sail, but that means because of that long list, I don't get to sail very often. Yeah, I know. So, Monty, uh, let me just go straight to, the, to a question. Today we will talk quite a bit about uh, perioperative medicine. Uh, the focus over the last two years uh, has been so much on the pandemic. And often one part that we don't talk about in the pandemic is actually all the knock-on effect of the pandemic mm -hmm. on elective services and so on. How is the situation now in London, first of all? How is the NHS doing? So it's a mixed message, really, Maurizio. I mean, the intensive care side of COVID has calmed right down. So if we look back to New Year's Eve this year compared to New Year's Eve the year before, I was on call for both of them. The year before, we were completely overwhelmed. We'd expanded our intensive care unit right out into overflow areas. We were close to 100 critically ill patients. This year, we had seven critically ill patients with COVID. So that's a dramatic change. <clears throat> the big difference is that we peaked with 60% of our staff off sick or self-isolating. So as everyone would have appreciated the requirements at that stage to self-isolate and to, to stay away from work was absolutely devastating uh, on the health system. And, and then the big knock-on effect, which I think we're going to go on to discuss, elective surgery gets cancelled again and uh, appointments for cancer investigations get delayed. So it's a very mixed message. Yeah, I think you're describing very similar situations, certainly for us uh, in Italy. This, uh, the very last wave has been particularly difficult, uh, not just for the number of patients, but because staff was severely affected. So very, very similar. Um, I also like to remind everyone you can send uh, questions on our platform. I'm also receiving questions uh, from social media, from our social media team, Adrian Wong, Segundo Lusania, Andrea Ortiz are collecting questions and posting the questions to me. I'm already starting to see some uh, there. Just, can you go into a bit more detail, Monty? 
what is the magnitude of cancer surgery um, for what you know in the NHS? And maybe we can think about scaling up globally. But we had we had an assessment done during the last COVID wave of the number of cancelled elective surgical patients overall. We can try and get some fine print on you know major cancer surgeries, etc. And, and I was lucky enough to be invited to write an editorial about one of those reviews that was uh, evaluating it in the in the high millions, you know, five, six, seven millions. But that's been growing. Uh, to a point whereby we're not exactly sure at the moment, but it's grown to a point where five, it's grown... Six, five, six millions for the NHS alone? For, for the NHS alone, and, and more, if you should have mean that. But the, numbers, the number is understandably uh, growing the whole time, such the current estimate is not exactly known. But in order to manage people's expectations, the government has told people to not be surprised if they have to wait at least two years for elective non-cancer surgery. They understandably haven't given guidance on cancer surgery because we must continue to hit our cancer targets. How we will achieve that is a known unknown, but that's what everyone's working very hard to achieve. Yeah, and, but even for cancer surgery, I uh, speak with many colleagues around the world, and I have to say, even my experience, I have to say that uh, while we have uh, uh, tried, of course, uh, to maintain that output, uh, we have seen sometimes patients uh, arriving with very late diagnosis due to screening being mm. missed uh, and um, actually seeing clinical situations, which, to be fair, I've not seen uh, for the last 20 years. C completely agree. I mean, in London, we were lucky in one way because my uh, colleague, uh, Professor David Walker, and others worked with a London-wide uh, number of syndicates to prioritise cancer patients, irrespective of their funding status. So we, we acquired private hospitals and we set up green pathways. But what we were seeing despite that was patients presenting with cancers at a much later stage, but also um, in particular, if we look at the um, cancer gynae uh, population, elderly females were coming in much more debilitated than they had been before. You know, they've been sitting around at home and if we objectively evaluated their fitness, they were in a much worse state to have surgery than we would have seen prior to COVID. And then there's the, the um, which is only just maturing, the impact of COVID, long COVID, acute COVID on the surgical episode. It does appear to be having a, a, a detrimental effect as well. So uh, what's going to happen next? I mean, our healthcare systems were already stretched before the pandemic. The pandemic has stretched them more. And now we're going to have a backlog of surgery that needs to be done, probably with a, a more frail population, with more comorbidities. How can we catch up with that? Will we ever be able to catch up with all that backlog? The, um, well, I referred to the editorial that I was invited to write for the BJA, which made me reflect on all of that. And I started by looking back at a document that I actually co-authored with an, uh, a few other people, but also with Professor David Bennett uh, over 15 years ago. It was a, a document about modernizing the care of patients undergoing major surgery. And uh, I therefore went on to title the editorial that the greatest innovation would be to do what we know. In other words, if we just dust that document off, which has got five key components to it, of it and remind ourselves what we've been trying to achieve for the, since the last century, that's a great starting position. You know, I'd be very happy to, to go over the five bullet points, but they very much relate to no amazing innovation compared to could we just get on and do what we know? So what are these key bullet points? 
Yeah, sure. What would the the first one, uh, which at the time we described differently, but has now basically become enhanced recovery, is to have you know standardised pathways that get people ready for surgery and out and ready to be discharged as quickly as possible, which we know we can do highly effectively. But for some reason, there are still people having meetings about how to start an enhanced recovery program. The next one is to disrupt the referral pathway, which has happened very successfully in a number of situations, i.e. as soon as a patient contemplates surgery, they should start to be on a preparation pathway. That means that they go for surgery when they're ready to go for surgery. And we know the list of things that can be fixed. And that's playing out very effectively. We've got seen results from some national trials where it's working. Then there's you know data, 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 and more data, because we still often work in a data vacuum. There's a, adopting technology, because technology-rich environments tend to have lower staffing ratios and are more efficient, and we could go into what some of those might be. But the final one is the availability of high-care beds. That was the purpose of that document more than 15 years ago. We had a paucity of HDU stroke enhanced care beds and COVID-19 in the UK flushed out that we still have the same challenge. You know, we only have 6.6 .6 critical care beds per 100,000. You've got about 12 and a half. Germany's got about 30. That, that can't be right. And I added one at the end because I was encouraged to, which is let's not abandon innovation and research because that would be a retrograde step. So very interesting. And uh, as you know, we're, we're a society that talks about intensive care uh, units and indeed I think we are seeing an expansion of our intensive care units with what you call level two or HDUs I mean you can name it uh, as you wish really but often it's about providing this uh, level of organ support of monitoring during the uh, more acute phases uh, after surgery what do you think the role is going to be for uh, for our units in uh, in the next years exactly for for the demands of surgery so, so I think that the development, as it's been called in the UK, with a document written by um, our Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, Intensive Care Society and Royal College of Anaesthetists, is the expansion of so-called enhanced care. It, it's, it's, it is HDU essentially, but it's the idea that let's, let's take some real estate and let's equip it up with the appropriate monitoring, not necessarily the ventilators, not the haemophilters, but the monitoring and some degree of organ support that means we can greatly expand our footprint then let's be smart about our staffing we have to we have to re-engage with team anesthesia which we slightly disengaged with in the uk we have to think about alternative provider models and we have to get much better at triaging and accepting some degree of remote monitoring and we've seen that happen locally at university college london hospitals again led by professor david walker and colleagues where we now have a perioperative team, which is not necessarily made up by intensivists, but everyone is enhanced care uh, capable and often do anesthesia for elective major surgery. Uh, Monty, let, let me elaborate a bit on that. Uh, I, when I was in the, in the UK, we often used to speak at your meetings and uh, we were all often uh, talking about the perioperative medicine physician, which is this new role which uh, was going to be maybe the evolution of anesthesia or intensive care somehow or specialized but who is the perioperative medicine physician this is one of the questions that we are getting um, from uh, from the chats is it a surgeon is it an anesthetist is it everyone 
I think it's uh, anyone who cares, anyone who wants to do it, and anyone who's able to do it. In the UK, the Royal College of Anaesthetists read, led, sorry, a multidisciplinary, multi-collegiate endeavour to describe what perioperative medicine should look like, what we thought it should look like. But it was very clear in that document that we didn't think team anaesthesia should be doing all the work because uh, there's, a, there's, there's enough to be done, quite frankly, in the operating room. We can push out a little bit and we're quite good as leaders in this space, as our intensivists. But I think we need to look at uh, everyone and turn around and say, we can describe the ambition, we can describe the vision, but we're all in this together. And that's why the eventual formation of our, uh, our national collaborative for perioperative care, which is its own entity now, is, is uh, multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary and intercollegiate. Yeah, and I think that's the way forward to be fair everywhere mm. uh, in the world. Um, we're getting some questions also about COVID-19. Um, there was some strong evidence that uh, going for surgery with uh, COVID-19 was not good for you. We saw mm. uh, that patient developed a, a series of complications, not necessarily uh, pulmonary complications, but mm. with increased mortalities and so on. And that was, however, during the first waves. Uh, when we didn't have vaccinations and we would, when we didn't have a lot of incidental findings of COVID-19. Has this changed now, uh, Monty? What if uh, COVID-19 uh, stays with us but causes less uh, severe disease? Uh, do we come to a stage where we may have to uh, accept bringing some of the patients for, for surgery? It's a question that I know that it's a, there is a hot debate even in Italy at the moment, I know in many countries, I wonder uh, what's your perception and uh, what's the debate of where you work? Well, I, I can speak from uh, a personal experience. Like many of us, I've had COVID uh, and I think I ended up with what we would describe as some degree of long COVID. So there was a lingering debilitation with a uh, representation of a multitude of different signs and symptoms that uh, when I went to our specialized clinic to contribute to some of the studies seemed to be reproducible in thousands of people. So I think the acute phase is relatively easy to understand. And it looks like the latest literature by my reading means we should probably wait seven to eight weeks in the acute episode. And then from the chronic episode, I think it has to be based on history, physical examination, laboratory evaluations. You know, because there are some, it varies from individual to individual, but there are some, for example, lingering uh, thrombophilia type of challenges, some thrombotic challenges, et cetera. So I think it's it's going to be factored into our history, physical, and examination. I'm just going to have a sup of my tea here, uh, Maurizio, for a second. Carry on. Go for it. Um, in, in this sense, do you think that it's really related to COVID specifically, <clears throat> or is it actually something that we are learning more thanks to the pandemic, but it could be the long-term effects of some infections in general? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. Combined with, you know, we've had a very significant lifestyle change. Um, we've probably had dietary changes. We've probably changed our microbiome. We might have been taking more over-the-counter medicines. We've certainly been uh, less active. So there are very, very many reasons why we might anticipate that the surgical outcomes could change around the time and following COVID. And certainly for the larger uh, trials that I've been involved in that involve the surgical patients, they've all agreed that they should factor this in to trying to understand the results. 
So uh, Monty, we cannot speak with you without uh, talking about goal-directed therapy and uh, <laughs> technology. Uh, what are we with goal-directed therapy now? And does it have a role with uh, in this crisis? Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, some people will still say, what? If you see what I mean, what do you, what do you mean? Other people say, that's just normal. That's what we do. Um, but it's clear from, I think, from um, talking to people or looking at the number of sales of different devices that it's still highly varied. I mean, I, I think in reality, everyone does some form of goal-directed therapy. Um, you know, to some people, goal-directed therapy equals cardiac output monitor. To other people, it, it means a logical, rational approach to physiology by having goals and treating to goals. So I think goal-directed therapy is probably everywhere. Um, why people haven't embraced the use of cardiac output monitoring, which is very readily available in different guises now, and the algorithm approach still remains a mystery to me because I'm so heavily biased in favor of it working. And I think you might be as well, Mauricio, but, you know, what, what do you think? Well, I, I'm also biased, but uh, today I'm asking questions to you. <laughs> <laughs> well ducked. The, um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, we're, we are still persisting with large randomized controlled trials. Well done, Rupert Pierce. Optimized 2 is nearly finished. Uh, well done to Mark Edwards. Floella is nearly finished. Uh, I'm probably not going to get involved in another large randomized controlled trial. I, I, I really enjoyed your conversation with Derek Angus the other day. I think we have to move on to learn from the COVID experience and learn from cancer drug evaluation and move on to platform evaluation because the innovations in our space are going to happen so rapidly. We can't evaluate through RCTs. We, we have to embrace very, very large-scale platform trial design, and we have to drop in these innovations and see if they work for us. Now, now, if it works at University College London hospitals, it might not necessarily work elsewhere, but that's okay if it works for us. So we can contribute to the overall uh, knowledge base and what should other people try, and then they should try it for themselves. I, I agree with you completely, and I really think that if there is a learning uh, that we have to take from, uh, uh, from the pandemics, really how fast we have been able to put together resources, energy, and data really to, to create evidence at such a fast pace. I mean, it's been really unprecedented and, and really refreshing to see that we could bring evidence from trials at the bedside so fast. So I really think we should not miss that in the future. Uh, in this sense, uh, Monty, when we do a trial and there is an algorithm about, you know, could be goal-directed therapy, but whatever you want, uh, um, are we using that algorithm to uh, give the same thing to everyone? Or are we using that as a way uh, to provide precision medicine? This is one of the questions. There is always a bit of tension when you talk about protocols. Um, what are we actually doing when we test the, those hypotheses with these uh, with these algorithms, for instance, about well, dynamic therapy and so on? Great, great question. Because when we when we look at a little closer at the human interaction with the algorithms, um, we're really not very good at following them. Uh, we get a little bit better, I think, if we're assigned a study nurse who keeps nudging us and saying you're supposed to give a fluid bolus now or the blood pressure's below the magic number. I I'm intrigued by the work that's been done by many groups uh, around the world, but the name Alexander Euston comes to, to mind in particular uh, about the using more closed loops or semi-closed loops. 
you know, the delivery of uh, anesthesia, the delivery of critical care at the bedside is ultra complicated now. And I think we're at the stage when the pilots realised that the planes were too clever to fly on your own. And they allowed the introduction of fly-by-wire just after the Apollo moon landing. I, I think we've reached that stage. We're, 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 be, we're very good decision makers, but we can't keep track of the depth of anesthesia, the analgesia, the fluids, the vasoactives. And, and, and you know, if we're going to call looking after the patient flying the plane and, and fly the plane as perfectly as the computers do. So I think that's the world that we're entering. And then we'll really be able to test those algorithms because the human factor that we are, because we are all awkward, curmudgeonly difficult people. I don't think we're predominantly lazy. I just think we're a bit awkward. Um, we don't follow the algorithms very well. Uh, in this sense, if there is a variable that it's, I would say, almost perfect uh, to apply these concepts is blood pressure. We have a lot of evidence yeah. around uh, uh, how bad hypotension is. So first of all, is hypotension really bad? Well, I think all hypotension is not created equal, and and it also then de de depends on your own, uh, you know, your own physiological states. If if you've got critical atherosclerosis in certain very important parts of your body, hypotension is going to be very different to if you're a you know fit twenty five year old. Because you know, if you go back to the basics of physiology, the opening pressure that is required. Let's you know, uh, let's look at the classical writings. You don't need much of a head of a pressure if you have volume and you have flow. That, that equation starts to change as you get critical atherosclerosis and change in vascular tone. And also depends, I think, on, on how you become hypotensive. If we go back to the shock analogies, you know, hypovolemic shock is different to septic shock and so on. So I think that's the same for intraoperative hypotension. Uh, hy hypovolemic shock is going to be, in my mind, and I think you can demonstrate that in the lab, much more devastating to organ perfusion than vasodilatatory um, drops in blood pressure. But we're, we're, um, we're relearning a lot of our basic physiology. Yes, I, I think we are. Um, what I was quite surprised, uh, though, was how fast hypotension can, can be associated with some, uh, with some damage. I mean, some of the study from the Cleveland screening groups, but uh, also others in intensive care, not just in the operating room, really showing just how short periods of hypotension and their associations with, with other outcomes. And I have to say, I've changed a bit my practice over the years. Um, because, you know, if you think that that was uh, that hypotension was related to hypovolemia, then in the past I was doing fluids and I was waiting for the effect. But sometimes the effect took something like 15, 20 minutes to, you know, to, to sort out the problem. And now I'm using more and more uh, little doses of vasopressors in the meanwhile. I wonder what's your view on this because the evidence to be fair is not uh, massive and I still think we're all just applying our physiological concepts to the evidence that is out there. Yeah I think it's, it's logical to restore volume flow and pressure but practically in the acute clinical situation you have to probably restore pressure that then flow then volume uh, be, because you know there are certain parts of the body that are critically dependent on a head of pressure the brain is a classical example and if everything else is going wrong, but you keep the pressure up for the brain, the brain will probably be okay. Then you can start to regroup and start to look after the kidneys and then eventually get around to looking after the gut. You know, the, the gut's more tolerant for a while, that the brain, the brain is not very tolerant for seconds and minutes. So I think, I think that's why I'm not that surprised if we stand back and look at it. 
that the one minute can be very bad for some people. Not, not hard to have a stroke in a minute if, uh, if you have critical uh, uh, cerebral perfusion. And in this sense, we have a very interesting and practical question, which uh, I like, <laughs> is what about uh, norepinephrine infusions peripherally? Beautiful question. I'm, I'm very intriguing, uh, very intrigued, uh, ever since I read the, uh, the Emmanuel Foutier study about keeping blood pressure up, and the, the appendix said that they used a peripheral norepinephrine infusion. I started to ask people, why, don't, why, why, why haven't we always done that? And then you'd get the standard, um, which we all tell each other, well, our local instructions say that we must only give it through a central line, and then you start to unpick that, and you realize that most of that's made up. Yeah. It's a completely rational, acceptable thing to give a peripheral norepinephrine infusion. I think it's a great idea, and I think we're going to see more and more evidence and more and more practice that says that it's just a, a rational, you know, uh, drug to add to your to your, to your anesthesia portfolio or armamentarium. It's it's logical. We used to remember. Do you remember renal dopamine, Maritza? Did you 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 you? I, I old enough to I didn't use it but I remember <laughs> you heard about it <laughs> so it was very common uh, when I started for a 50 mil syringe to be made up to have renal dopamine in it. it was it was magic dopamine that only went to the kidneys which we all know is not true uh, yeah. but one of the reasons that fell into disrepute is it's one way of giving a norepinephrine infusion but it's not called norepinephrine and uh, when we gave uh, renal dopamine the, the, the blood pressure did look like train tracks. So there was a period of time when that was relatively normal. No, I, I have to say, I completely agree with you. And this is not just related to the operating room where we are using it more and more, uh, but maybe even more important in emergency situations outside the ICU. You know, don't delay starting oh. the norepinephrine just because you don't have a central line and the patient is not already in the ICU. And we've seen with the stretch capacity and not having that free bed to bring the patient in straight away, how important actually this is to restore that, uh, that blood pressure. Yeah. But then the thing we must uh, remind ourselves of is once we fix the blood pressure with a vasopressor infusion, we must continue our resuscitation until ideally we can get that vasopressor infusion off. We may not be able to, but we must continue to work to get it down because you're also probably not old enough to remember uh, the patients that we left purple around the edges that lost their hands and their legs as a result of the over-aggressive use of uh, noradrenaline, it was, as it was called in the day, infusions, uh, when we were in the fashion before last of running people dry, you know, right uh, back we, in there. We, we tended to move in, uh, in fashions, wasn't it? I mean, from overly dry and too much vasopressor to too much fluids and probably as often the yeah. truth is... I mean, yeah, we, we saw that. We, we all talked about it. You did some uh, wonderful discussions online about the first phase of COVID and patients being run dry. And we seem to have forgot the fact that, you know, one of the first things I learned in intensive care is not only does the air have to go in and out, but the blood has to go round and round. And it is ventilation, perfusion, matching. Absolutely. And if you run dry, the kidneys will pay a price. Absolutely. Um, in this sense, another question is about goal-directed therapy, but not in the operating room, in the ICU for septic patients. Um, I have to ask you a question about process, arise, promise. Um, 
What's your view now? You never use SCV2? You never looked at it anymore after those trials? I do. Well, well the, the, I'm mainly in the post-surgical intensive care unit and uh, only occasionally let into the sort of main intensive care unit these days. But I, I look at everything. I mean, it's all... Uh, intensive care remains both a science and an art, and and all information I think is is useful, pr providing that you, um, you you're not uh, a slave to the information. You use the information as a holistic evaluation, and I think uh, right-sided saturations are, are very useful addition. Monty, if I'm not mistaken, you um, conducted and published one of the first uh, strong evidence. Uh, studies about gastric tonometry what, then, what a, absolutely what a tragic loss gastric tonometry is i think it was launched before its time so uh, for, for for those listening who, who uh, haven't used or don't remember about gastric tonometry is the idea um brought forward although it's a very historical idea from a surgeon from uh, south africa richard fiddy and green to measure the carbon dioxide tension in the lumen of the stomach, you can you can do the same measurement elsewhere, and use that as a, a measure of the balance between flow, metabolism, and ventilation. Physiologically, very very sound. Um, launched prematurely as a product, and therefore I think got caught up in the early days of evidence-based perioperative medicine. If one stands back and looks at the available evidence, if you meta-analyze it, uh, which has been done in the last five years, published in Critical Care, your conclusion would be um, that we should do a big trial, because the you know the the point estimate is in favour of tonometry being a useful monitor, and it's and it's got it's uh, it's shifted across in favour of it enough to say we should really do a big trial, but it got, it got it got killed off by. Um, very, very small uh, trials. You know, we wouldn't even call them pilots now. They were so small. It, it, it's a pity. I mean, it didn't happen just with gastric tonometry. It happened with technology and drugs that uh, we, we dumped them. And now probably we start to understand with all these big data and trials that probably we have to consider whether there are some small populations or some larger populations where we may have to uh, maybe retest again some of the, yeah. the therapies that we ditched. I mean, I mean, again, my bias is if we had tonometry available and we would have dropped it in during COVID, we would have worked out a sweet spot for resuscitation, you know, the, to sort of just dry enough, which is what it would have possibly allowed you to do. And we possibly would have worked out in the space of six months whether it was useful or not. But maybe that's the brave new world that we're going to enter, Maurizio. We're going to build these big platforms and we're going to do these massive trials to work these things out quickly. I, I think that's the future. I think you and I had a conversation before where we were saying that it's when big trials meet big data, and I think that's definitely the future. And we've seen it even during this pandemic. Some of the adaptive uh, studies that they, they brought so much evidence, they were absolutely yeah. the principle. Uh, Monty, we're coming to the end of our chat. Uh, it's been fantastic. We have many more questions to, that are coming here, but we don't have time anymore. I'm just going to give you a minute, if you want, just to say... Uh, something to the young generation that is coming to intensive care and maybe to the world of perioperative medicine, why would you do it now? Why would I do it? I think it's that, well, uh, where perioperative medicine meets critical care is is the most amazing place to work because you, you have so many opportunities to help people. You have so many 
different variations on a theme that as you go through the different stages of life, you can pick up. I, I can't think of a better place to work in medicine. Now, I'm having said that, the end of this month, I retire from the National Health Service. But I'm doing that to take my pension. I'm not retiring. So no, no goodbyes to Monty yet. I don't think you're disappearing. We'll be very happy <laughs> to host you again. Monty, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.